This week we are talking about Gothic cathedrals and prison architecture. It's also sometimes referred to as penal architecture. And we're going to begin this lecture with Gothic cathedrals, um, but in order for you to kind of understand how I'm formatting this, um, I'm using a so the podcast audio will go along with a PowerPoint that I made that I just turned into images. So if you click on the images on the website, they will enlarge and you can view it as a PowerPoint as you're listening to the audio. And so we'll see how this works. As you know, we are experimenting with our quarantine and distant learning experience. So. Um, I took a stab at this. So Romanesque and Gothic cathedrals have a few differentiations with them um, in terms of their architectural structure. And it, Gothic is responding in a way to structures of the Romanesque church. And Romanesque features come from ancient Roman and Byzantine buildings and other local traditions, but it's known for its massive quality. So there's really thick walls, round arches, sturdy pillars. There's what is called a barrel vault, which looks sort of like a barrel shape, but only half of it. So that creates the vault shape, which you should be able to see on one of the slides. They also feature large towers, decorative arcading, which are the multiple, um, almost standardized. Um, it's so hard to do this and not point to it, but the on the outer rim of the church, and you see those um, columns and then the arcade that you can walk through alongside the church or outside of. And each building, that is Romanesque is very clearly defined. It's kind of, uh, it's very symmetrical and that counts for the exterior and the interior. And it's overall, it may not, um, you know, from a contemporary standpoint, it's not necessarily simple. So I don't think I would say simple, but when you compare it to Gothic, it has a simplicity that the Gothics are making even more extravagant, more abundant. Um, and this is in result to Gothic having more slender columns that allow for these beautiful, large stained glass windows. And that lets in a lot more light, which is really important for the Catholic religion and this embodiment in the architecture of having light spill in. And this is Similar to the ziggurats, actually, when the light comes in on the temple on top of the ziggurat, light coming in means that, um, you know, the Holy Spirit is present or God is present in that space. And therefore, the pilgrim visiting this church, because likely that's who it was, was um, then sort of covered in this light and covered in um, this abundant visitation from above. 
through the architecture. But they also have carvings and ribs, which we'll talk about, that make kind of dizzying displays of decoration that makes you know, okay, I am in a Catholic, I mean, I am in a, well, Catholic, yes, but Gothic church building. And now Gothic architecture, um, you know, it's not just churches. It's also used in other forms of architecture like schools and universities, for example. But it began with this church um, architecture space. So almost every surface is decorated. But the key component here, and it's so key that it has its own slide, and they are called the flying buttresses. And the flying buttresses are an arch structure that extends from the upper portion to a great mass, so a really heavy, weighty part of the overall structure. And this conveys a lateral force that pushes the wall outwards that can then make the entire structure wider, but also allow it to be higher up for the, the entire overall structure itself to be more monumental, but also build upward, kind of like a skyscraper. Um, very different, but kind of that same idea that it, you're building out support in order to build upward. And so these fine buttresses are key in Gothic architecture, and they are the element that really, one of the elements that allowed the Gothic architectural churches to differentiate from the Romanesque style, because Romanesque did not have the flying buttress. And so I have this example of Abbey Church of Saint-Denis, which is a cathedral basilica in Saint-Denis in France, and is a large medieval abbey that is in the commune of Saint-Denis. And it's one of, it's an architectural landmark, it's well known, but it's the first major structure that used all of the elements in the Gothic style. So both stylistically and structurally, Saint-Denis marked the change from the Romanesque to Gothic. And before the term Gothic even came into common use, it was known as the French style. So really, this is a French moment of their nationalist style and this is coming from the Catholic Church. So this is also going to be important when we get to Foucault later, is that these early modern, medieval and early modern, are still working within the structures of the church. So there is no separation of church and state. And um, there, there are sovereign powers that are ruling the individuals of who live in that state. Um, and that is something that we will talk more about even when we get to the French Revolution and neoclassicism, European neoclassicism. So back to Saint-Denis. So the site used to be a cemetery and around 475 CE, so it's common era, as you'll remember, the difference between BCE and CE, Saint-Genevieve established a church at the site, which then became the Abbey. And so who is Saint-Denis? Well, he is a patron saint of France, 
and I have a slide of him, and he's the first Bishop of Paris. And the legend, another legendary tale, they don't end in the ancient world. Um, legend says that he was decapitated on the hill of Montmartre and subsequently carried his head to the church, indicating where he wanted to be buried. So in some kind of afterlife, holy moment, he indicates this is where I want to be buried, carrying his own head, his ghost. So it's a very legendary site for these purposes. And also French loyalty was buried there until 1789, which happens to be the end of the French Revolution, which again, we will come back to in more detail, actually a little bit uh, with Foucault, but um, most prominently in the French Revolution week of our semester together. So the patron of the church is this abbot, um, and he's given the abbey in 1135, finishes it around 1145, and there's something significant about the modern version or modern visual knowledge of the church because the medieval version had a north tower, but it was destroyed by a storm because it was, it just kept collapsing. It was way too adventurous and advantageous in terms of its construction, which is pictured on our slide. And so it, it was on the verge of collapsing, but was ultimately demolished completely in the 19th century because of the French Revolution. Um, the Gothic style revolutionized architecture by these structural designs that were innovative and taking on the ideas of Romanesque and putting them together, creating the style that we now know as Gothic. And one more addition that I did want to point to before we move on is that the abbot Suger wanted what was called a choir, which is actually a part of the architectural space. Um, and we also know that, maybe some of us know that also as like a group of singers that sing in either church spaces or other spaces. And this choir though, in the architectural sense would be suffused with light. So this is another way to get in light through those beautiful stained glass windows is to include the facets of one, the pointed arch, the ribbed vault, and the clustered columns that support the ribs. And obviously these flying buttresses that I mentioned before. But these, the way that all of that light could come in is that they were built high enough with the ribbed vaults and the pointed arch. And I've showed that um, this is a bit tricky doing virtually and with my voice, um, but I'm trying to walk you through it in terms of the slide. So if you look at the difference between the barrel vault and the ribbed vault, you'll see that it has more supports that allow the structure to continue being built up and up and up um, which sometimes was a little risky in terms of that north tower that kept collapsing in the case of Saint-Denis. Um, but this is how we have our 
famous legendary cathedrals and the idea of Gothic, um, having it be very uh, high and closer to God is the original meaning. But that light filling in allows those inside, um, the parishioners, the pilgrims, to be filled with that light. So you have solid masonry is replaced with vast window openings with this brilliant um, stained glass. And it's not as dark as it would have been in the Romanesque style. So again, the pointed arches, the ribbed vaults, which are the, these intersecting sections that of the roof that allow for more stability and allow them to build upward, making light come in and giving the overall design some elegance. Um, you know, it's not as robust. It's a bit more slender in terms of its architectural um, look. And then the ribbed vaults give rise to the flying buttresses that support the, um, that allow this structure to be built out and be lighter and taller than buildings ever had before. So in terms of architectural engineering, this is a really big step. And as I mentioned, this allows light to come in. Um, Saint-Denis was, is, and still is known for the choir space that I have a photo of on the slide. And light is connected to the divine in this sense. And so I want to move on now to the Chartres Cathedral because this was mentioned in the reading um, that you had. And I'm wondering if you see already, just looking at the Chartres Cathedral with having just seen the Saint-Denis Cathedral, some similarities, um, maybe some differences. But you should definitely start noticing some similarities in the the you know, kind of canonical Gothic style of this time of the medieval era. And one thing, and this is the slide that has a interior sketch of, um, it's right after the flying buttress slide and it has this, um, it kind of looks like a blueprint. I mean, because it is, but I'm trying to direct you to where I'm talking. So, this um, Latin cross is the style of what that style was called in terms of the design. And in terms of the Schott Cathedral, it's located on this hill that rises above the whole town. And I'm noticing again, as I talk about this, similarities with the pyramids and ziggurats because the cathedrals were, and also, the monastery in medieval Japan and now contemporary Japan, but in terms of these original structures and their original timeline that they were created, they were meant to be seen, but they were also meant to be traveled to. So often pilgrims would go on these pilgrimages to witness these beautiful cathedrals and more significantly um, have this moment with God in terms of their own Catholic beliefs that this architecture would allow them to have that they just couldn't get elsewhere is what they believed. So it was really a big deal to travel to these cathedrals 
and abbeys and, and visit. So, and the Schacht Cathedral still has the relic. So this is important. Again, it was also mentioned in the reading um, in terms of the relics being in jeopardy, but the relic is still in the Schacht Cathedral in terms of the one, um, it's the tunic that Mary was believed to wear during the birth of Christ. So Mary is a, is inserted into the Catholic religion in a significant way because she is the virgin, but also because she is a way for people to be in touch with Christ. So people felt that the closer they were to Mary, the closer they were to God. And um, this is significant in terms of the relic, but also paintings um, in the medieval world and um, even stained glass windows designs where she appears. Okay, and now moving a little bit forward to the exterior, I want to point out that, and I mentioned the difference between, and I saw in some of your responses too that you're understanding this really well, the difference between something that is stylized and something that is naturalistic. And in this medieval moment, we have the rebirth of what we call naturalism. And Gothic sculptors began to reintroduce these classical principles into of sculptural composition into Western art. And so you have the classical and medieval worlds colliding in this sense. And you have things like traditional narratives of biblical tradition are no longer speaking through these abstracted, very stylized types, but instead required believable individual bodies, if we're talking about sculptures, and animated facial expressions to tell their stories. So it's not this standardized general feature of a face, but something that seems unique and individual and is and there's a person behind that face. It's not just a work of art, but it has a story to it. And there's a part, so on the exterior, there are some significant features. One is the, the tympanum, which is on the facade. Um, in this case, we see Christ in, majest in majesty surrounded by four evangelist symbols of Christ, like the crossed halo. Um, he's barefoot. He's sitting on a throne. He holds a book in one hand probably the Bible, and raises the other in a gesture of blessing. Um, there's, you know, he's surrounded by an angel, a winged lion, um, an ox, an eagle. And these are all mentioned, these are all creatures that are mentioned in the Old Testament. And they are next to, so you have the tympanum, and then you have jams. And the jams are going to sit higher than you are. So if you walked through this portal, the jams would be just above you, but you would pass them as you're walking in. And there's a reason for that. So for us entering the church, we are seen, so if imagine we're walking through the church and we're seen as intermediaries to the figures above. And this places us in relationship to this hierarchy of power 
descending from Christ above to the symbols of earthly kingship and individuals like us below. So that's it. it is this reminder that there's this higher power present always, but especially present in the space you are about to enter. And you'll notice that these jams feature different figures, and they are coming, again, the Old Testament, of prophets and kings and queens, and they're long and attenuated bodies. Um, they're each attached to a column, and they're meant to look kind of transcendent. So there's not a whole lot of grounding below their feet, but there's this emphasis on the linear because they are meant to be aligned with the divine. Um, but it also shows their importance as an architectural component. I mean, they do in a way have a utility being at the door. Um, so they open, open the space into, for those to actually go inside. Um, so there's two birds, one stone kind of thing happening with these architectural features. It's also probably worth mentioning too at this time that there is a rise in scholasticism or a rise in the university. And at the University of Paris, the quality of teaching was very distinguished from other universities. It was a, a very high level. Um, it's still a great university or known to be. But the most important scholar or most notable for for our purposes right now and also at this time was Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas of Aquinas adopted his own dialectical method um, to use for teaching. And this also contributed to his own scholasticism that was really important and ultimately the aim of every educator at this time, which of course is mostly men. Well, all men and all men um, at universities, but it also became important for education and religious stories to be told to an illiterate audience. So this is another way that architecture helps with that because you have things like these jams and also sting. I had to leave the sting glass out because I didn't want to make this too long, um, but there are there's a famous rose window in the Chartres Cathedral that would tell you a story from the Bible, of course, um, but specifically the role of Virgin Mary as this mystic rose, um, and this kind of ties back to Catholic mysticism. So this is a way for, even if you aren't attending the university, um, you can have some sense of insight into these classic stories. Because otherwise, you know, there's no way to really find out about them other than maybe through the sermon. Um, and that's, that's it. There's no education system um, that's open to everyone. But it does become more significant during this time. 
And so looking at the first reading, not Foucault just yet, but the may the hatchet and the hammer never damage it, the fate of the Cathedral of Chartres during the French Revolution. And this is written by Mary Catherine Cooney. Well, I'm not sure if she's still a professor. I couldn't figure that out. Um, but it looks like she was in Ohio teaching there. And she, <clears throat> when you're first reading this, it seems like she is against this, the idea of the French Revolution. But the more that you look into it, she's actually defending the revolutionaries at this time and saying, you know, they've been blamed for destroying these historical um, buildings and specifically the Chartres Cathedral in, in the case of her work. Um, but they were not doing this ruthlessly and without any um, kind of grief of their own of these historical monuments, and they do care about preserving the history. Um, it's just that the revolution was about so much more than that, that um, there was also some damage to these historical sites. So it's kind of interesting. Um, and she, call, she refers to it as the de-Christianization efforts during the Reign of Terror. And the Reign of Terror, we, again, will come back to when we are doing the French Revolution Week. But um, we will, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a summary of it. It's a period of the French Revolution when the creation of the first French Republic results in a series of massacres and public executions. This is important. They happen publicly. So think of that as a spectacle, which Foucault um, adheres to in Panopto panopticism, and they take place in response to this um, anti-clerical sentiment that the people have and also um, considerable taxes on simple, simple needs, simple necessities. Um, and their leader is Maximilien Robespierre, um, who is later accused of treason and as well as other Jacobins. Um, and the Jacobins are one of the groups, Robespierre is the leader of the Jacobins, but it's one of the groups during the French Revolution that is fighting the monarchy. Um, and you'll see this happen around Europe later in the early to mid 19th century as well, where the falls of monarchies are happening all over because people are fed up with not having any voice or any say in the government. And they believe that the people have, who, who better than the people themselves to decide how and what um, should be governed and what should not be governed. But in the case of France in the medieval age, um, there's no real rhyme or reason to whoever's in power other than their own sovereignty, um, which means they're born into it, it's in their bloodline, and they have complete um, power. It's, it's a theocracy, so they have complete and total power governed by 
the higher powers of God. So this is the, for France, it's really um, about the Catholic Church as well as other places in Europe. But since we're focusing on Foucault and Gothic architecture originating in France, um, that is important to understand. But we will talk more about this um, during, what is it, October 8th. We'll, we talk about the French Revolution and um, European classicism, sculpture and painting. I'm not sure if we do architecture, we'll have to see. So Mary Catherine Cooney is discussing and contesting, you know, is this destruction actually made up? There's this back and forth of destroyed sculptures. She mentions an artist, Sir Jean, and this other contractor of Chartres Cathedral, saint So, who argue about preserving artistic works and whose royal subject matter commission did not diminish their contribution to France's cultural heritage. And Sir Jean, who actually is a Jacobin, um, again, this revolutionary group led by Robespierre, denounces the destruction and removal of status as unpatriotic, but kind of adds a bit of nuance to this argument by saying, quote, in destroying prejudice, which was maybe laudable, it was necessary to destroy historical traces as well. So they thought, Sergent thought, well, okay, yes, if you want to destroy prejudice, but now you're also destroying history by hurting these Catholic cathedrals. So he was very against this. Many others were. But as Mary Catherine describes, um, even Sergent, who held the Gothic marvel in high esteem, knew that there was something else to the story. It wasn't fully um, the fault of the revolutionaries that, you know, they're attacking specifically these cathedrals. It's kind of an oversimplification. And Sir John thought that France concluded its wars with Europe and eventually, or eventually when they concluded the wars with Europe, tourists would travel and, and view these medical medieval masterpieces. And this can help the economy, can add to the cultural liveliness. Um, so it's a good thing. And as a Jacobin, he is saying, no, yes, of course we want this. Um, so there's, there's a number of back and forth. There's the example of the relic in the crypt that hoped to attract pilgrims to visit Chartres, but it was actually, so it was away from view and then was moved into a more prominent position and thrown into flames during a fire lit in the final days of the Reign of Terror. So that cult statue that should have been um, kept safely hidden in a way in, in its relic case um, you know, the bishop decided to put it in this more prominent position, and there were lots of riots, lots of fire um, during the Reign of Terror, and it was all about, as Foucault implies, he doesn't specifically state this example, but the, the spectacle of the medieval world is just completely um, in, public, in the public eye. 
So if it's not kept away safely, it's um, at risk being destroyed during the reign of terror. Um, so perhaps a poor decision on the bishop's part of wanting, well, I want pilgrims to come, um, but the Jacobins, <clears throat> and maybe not necessarily, there, there were a number of groups during the revolution um, and reign of terror, but led by the Jacobins. So thought, well, they probably didn't think about it at all. So the National Convention was created after the Reign of Terror prohibited both feudal and monarchic royal symbols. Um, and some believe that the symbols, yeah, there was a tension because some believe there was a preservation of art and history and even nationalism of France, but also serving to be educational for future generations. Um, so ultimately, though, Mary Catherine Cooney is arguing that the Jacobins or other Republicans, people interested in making France a republic, did not lack interest in maintaining the church's ornamentation or architectural beauty, but rather they wanted to end the monarchic reign itself. And so accusations against them that claim, you know, their main aim was to destroy the integrity and preservation of these mon monumental histories um, is not true. And that's ultimately what she argues. So the slide that has Charles Wilde's watercolor of Chartres Cathedral will help us transition into a discussion about Piranesi's prints that are part of a series he made known as imaginary prisons. And I just wanted to point out that before advanced modern technology and also before 3D printing, etchings and drawings um, and prints were a way for artists to depict and imagine architectural landscapes. And Charles Wilde is famous for being one of the cavaliers of the turn of the century who is, making these watercolors. Um, he does do a lot of watercolors and also prints of cathedrals. Um, and he was English and known to especially dabble in the method of architecture and watercolor. And moving on to Giovanni Battista Piranesi, who was alive from 1720 to 1778. So we're looking at an 18th century artist. And he was fascinated with Rome. He was, there was no one who appreciated Roman architecture as an artist more than Piranesi. Um, and he really exaggerated and added a ton of detail, as much as he possibly could, into his drawings, partly because of his love of Roman aqueducts and engineering. Um, very, he was very impressed by their abilities to create such um, groundbreaking methods of both engineering and architecture. But it also set a lot of his own artistic style, which was highly detailed as well. And you can kind of see the passion for um, 
adding and not leaving anything untouched or uncovered on the canvas, so to speak, um, on the paper, because you often did etchings. Um, and so he derived, his principal inspiration was really from these firsthand examinations and moments of viewership of classical antiquities, but he also borrowed from Renaissance um, and Baroque structures too, and infused these topographical scenes of well-known buildings with, like I kind of mentioned, exaggerating scale and manipulating perspective by using multiple vanishing points, which was also pretty groundbreaking um, for visual art at this moment. So he's famous for these prints of that are appreciating Roman architecture, but he also has a notable collection of a fictitious architecture, the imaginary prison sketches. And he didn't necessarily call them imaginary prisons, but he they're they're known to be that way. And same thing goes for the titles of the works. He didn't actually title them what they are titled. It, they would just be numbered by him, but um, they're come to be known as these colloquial titles. Um, that gives you a little bit of a, a little bit of help, honestly, and like, okay, what am I looking at? Because of they're so detailed. And I and so I've shown you three of them here, uh, three of the sixteen. And it was started in 1745 and were originally drawings. And then he came back to them, reworked them a decade later, and made them into prints that could then be made into multiple copies. And they're about 16 inches by 21 inches, so they're not too large. They are highly detailed. And you'll see that, especially in, um, let me look at this myself, the Gothic, there's the round tower, which um, is interesting in terms of what we'll be talking about with the Panopticon, but also the Gothic arch, um, the 14th plate is this attention to Gothic architecture. And you can see it's representing Gothic halls um, where all kinds of machinery and wheels and cables, catapults even. And it's almost dizzying looking at these and trying to figure out where a person would be placed within them. And they've been described in the more contemporary this would be ninth, um, 20th century, described as Kafka-esque. And that's really used now to reflect the writing of Franz Kafka, obviously, but describes bizarre or surrealistic um, and kind of incomprehensible predicaments or um, something that is so socio-bureaucratic, that there's just no way to find a way out. Um, and there is a sense of imprisonment in that, um, so to speak. 
So anyway, I've included, I just wanted to pull these in because I think it's a good transition into talking about the Panopticon. And I've included a link to the Princeton Art Museum website if you're interested in viewing more from this series. So let's move to the Panopticon, shall we? So first, who is Jeremy Bentham? And, you know, of course, he's allegedly the inventor of the Panopticon. Um, and he was regarded as the founder of utilitarianism and efficient models, um, as well as very economical. And was a leading advocate of the separation of church and state freedom also, and individual legal rights. But I put emphasis on the separation of church and state to note the transition of the of society um, turning away from any attention toward the church. And the enlightenment is part of what is steering these conversations, um, which we'll get a bit more into very shortly. Ironically, or maybe not ironically, but interestingly, the original inventor was of the Panopticon model was his brother, his brother Samuel, Samuel Bentham, who went on to design a school in Russia using the Panopticon model, which is interesting because the Panopticon is not, was never meant just to be for a prison. It was meant to be utilized in factories, schools, hospitals, um, and any other highly managed um, architectural space. But as a work of architecture, the Panopticon, what does it do at its most basic? Well, it allows a watchman to observe occupants without the occupants knowing whether or not they're being watched. So metaphorically speaking, the Panopticon was a way to trace the surveillance tendencies of disciplinarian societies. There is a central tower surrounded by cells. In the central tower is the watchman, that's where the watchman is aimed to go, or the master guard. And in the cells are prisoners or workers or children, depending on the use of the building. Again, this model was created with the intention of being used in a ubiquitous way in terms of um, spaces that managed people. And the tower has a bright light so that the watchman is able to see everyone in the cells, or that's the idea. However, the people in the cells are not able to see the watchman and therefore have to assume that they are always under observation. So even if, theoretically, the watchman doesn't even need to be in the tower, and yet it doesn't make a difference for the prisoners because they already have embodied this understanding that they're being watched all of the time. And since they do not have any autonomy or power to actually confirm the truth of that, they have to assume that they're always being surveilled. And ultimately living in that, being in that space is enough to convince oneself that they are always being um, under watch. 
And so now Bentham, and when I say Bentham now, I'm speaking of Jeremy Bentham, not his brother. The model was greatly influenced by many Enlightenment thinkers, especially um, John Locke and David Hume, who were empiricists, but were also considered to be a part of this classic, classical liberalist thinking that Foucault um, critiques with capitalism. But utilitarianism is, Jeremy Bentham is known to be the father of. And it's when the greatest amount of happiness or pleasure created for everyone results in the smallest amount of pain carried out by that action. So that's the definition of utilitarianism. But happiness, according to Bentham then, is a matter of experiencing pleasure and lack of pain. So the least amount of harm um, and the greatest amount of pleasure or happiness. And there's also an economical intention here as well. So what can be the most cost effective um, and efficient to make and to create? And so this really, this model really echoes what Foucault says when he writes, he is seen, but he does not see. He is an object of information, but never a subject in communication. And that is in regards to the prisoner. The prison on the Isle of Youth in Cuba is the closest thing to Bentham's design that actually exists or existed. It's not actually in function because it closed in 1967. But as the most complete example, of a panopticon. It is something that, well, the name of it is Presidio Modelo, model prison, and it opened in 1928 at the behest of Cuba's first modern day dictator, Gerardo Machado. But it, like I mentioned, it, it was finally closed in 1967. And it had a central hub and four out of the eight rotundas were completed according exactly to the plan of Bentham for the Panopticon, but on an even grander scale. Um, and even though they are closed, there's this sense of strangeness when people visit the site and they've written about this that the spirit of surveillance and repression lives on in this abandoned ruin um and it's also reflects the tone of who it housed under the regime of its former inmate fidel castro who as you probably are familiar um transformed cuba into the first communist state in the western hemisphere and um, was both prime minister and then president of Cuba until 2008. And it says, quote, on the eve of what would become the U.S.'s most famous prison uprising, the inmates of Attica Correctional Facility in upstate New York endured deplorable conditions. Their infections went untreated, their teeth fell out due to negligible dental care, they even lacked adequate access to soap and toilet paper. On September 9th, 1971, these pent-up grievances simmered over what roughly 1,300 inmates took over the prison. 
roughly 1300 um, for and it went on for four days they made demands on the state like better medical care fewer limits on their freedom and immunity from prosecution for rebelling or in this case rebelling would be advocating for themselves and their needs basic needs um People from the Black Panther Party, like Bobby Seale, were brought in as mediators um, at their behest and generally asserted their worth as human beings, is how the Jacobin um, magazine puts it. But On the eve of what would become the U.S.'s most famous prison uprising, the inmates of Attica Correctional Facility in upstate New York endured deplorable conditions. Their infections went untreated, their teeth fell out due to negligible dental care, they even lacked adequate access to soap and toilet paper. On September 9, 1971, these pent-up grievances simmered over when roughly 1,300 inmates took over the prison. For four days, they were effectively in charge. They made demands on the state, better medical care, fewer limits on their freedom of expression, immunity from prosecution for rebelling. They negotiated with mediators brought in at their behest, like the Black Panther leader, Bobby Seale, and generally asserted their worth as human beings. But whatever the prisoners gained in those few days was quickly pulverized by the brute force of the state. Seeking dignity, they instead unleashed the wrath of New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller. And Nelson Rockefeller ordered state law enforcement to come into the prison, which resulted in killing dozens of um, incarcerated people. So I want to conclude with some questions for you to think about, but feel free to come up with your own as well. But I think that it's worth asking how effective these forms of control really are? And are they inevitable? Is the messiness that Foucault alluded to in Discipline and Punish of the early modern models of governance, ones he described as spectacle? Are they, even in the efforts of ration and order that come with various forms of governance and bureaucracy, is there room for resistance, for uprising? And I think that Attica and St. Louis as well, and I have included a photo of that when the precinct was caught on fire during the riots after George Floyd's death this year. What does it mean to live in a world, not of early modern spectacle, but one that has access to these performances of resistance? And what do these forms of resistance mean? And I've called them performances, but I mean that in a genuine way something that collective bodies are acting out in a form of uprising. We can also think about representations of race and gender, which Foucault is not explicit about. Does he miss an opportunity by not being explicit in terms of discussions of race or gender? 